Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com Do you like to listen? Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode number 9 of The Lift. Those of you who are fans of the show and know what we do at Ninth Story Studios may know that 9 is a very special number to us. So it's only fitting that we give episode number nine of season two to our good friend, longtime friend, Diane Student from the History Goes Bump podcast. Diane and her wife, Denise, create this fantastic show called History Goes Bump, and they call it Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. And essentially what they do on that show is they examine haunted locations, they do a ton of research, and they talk about what might be true and what may not be true and kind of the history of the location. So it's a fun way to learn history about a location and also get a little bit of spooky stuff along with it. It's a great show. It's a lot of fun. They have a huge community of listeners, very interactive with their listeners, and they've really grown this from something kind of small into this huge behemoth that I'm just really honored to have an opportunity to share a piece of Diane's fiction with you today. You can find them at historygoesbump.com. You can also find them in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts, you're sure to find History Goes Bump. Great show. Do be sure to check it out. I guess the best way to describe it is to say that it's like Mythbusters for haunted locations. I think you'll dig it. Also, the same day that this episode is airing, which is April 12th of 2017, Victoria's first crossover with a show outside of Ninth Story Studios. She is going to be featured in an episode later today, episode number 11 of the Alexandria Archives podcast, which is a great show I mentioned in the last episode of The Lift, and it is now time for you to listen. May already be out by the time you're listening to this. So head on over to alexandriaarchives.com and look for episode number 11. Now, before we move on into the show today, I just want to say thank you to some of our new Patreon supporters. Since our last episode, we had Patricia Harris, April Barber, Angela Mabry, Brad Erickson, Jenny Sweeney, and Hannah Woodford jump on board to support the show. We certainly appreciate that. If you haven't supported the show yet and you'd like to, you can do that over at patreon.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. You can also see a list of all the cool kids who are supporting the show over at victoriaslift.com forward slash support. For all of you who have been longtime supporters of the show, you'll hear your name listed at the end of today's episode after the credits. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to the show. And without further ado... We'll let Diane say hello, and then we'll go for a ride. Hi, this is Diane Student, and I'm the writer for today's episode of The Lift, Redemption. I hope you enjoy the story. You can find out more about the podcast I host at historyghostbump.com and find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com. 
Perhaps the person I seek is coming to me. The interior of the car is dark and appears to be empty when it reaches the lobby. I grasp the gate and slide it open. Cautiously, I slide inside the empty car and press the number two button. Nothing happens. Wanna take a ride on my lift? I hear a little girl's voice say from somewhere above me. Who said that? The lift lurches as a giggle rings down the (laughs) elevator shaft. The car creaks upward, past the second floor, without stopping. I slam my palm against the third floor button, and again, the elevator continues past the third floor. I clearly have no control of the elevator's movement. The compartment stops on the seventh floor. Number seven. This should be lucky, I mumble. I stand in the car and just listen. A slight pressure squeezes my inner ear as though I am standing inside a vacuum. Against my better judgment, I push the gate open and exit. The hallway is lined with doors, and I am stunned that the lighting is dim because it is provided by gas lights. How old is this hotel? I walk to the end of the hall and find some stairs since the elevator is malfunctioning. An oppressive heaviness creeps over me, and I glance from side to side as I maneuver down the hall. The carpet beneath my feet is threadbare and outdated. This could be some crack den, and the child I heard earlier had just wandered away from her strung-out mother. I nearly reached the door to the stairs when a young girl literally appears out of thin air in front of the door. I jump. You're not leaving already, are you, Tina? She asks. Her accent and the authority with which she addresses me is surprising. She is a cute kid with curly blonde hair done up in pigtails, a charming smile, and beautiful green eyes. Her purple dress is old and worn and as out of date as the carpet. I abruptly cease my assessment when I realize she called me by name. Her voice seems familiar, but her face is a mystery. Wait, are you the one who was calling to me downstairs? I inquire. She nods, and I continue. How do you know my name? She smirks and answers with a question. How did you get here, Tina? I don't know. I was hoping maybe you knew. You were brought here, she responds. The girl skips past me down the hallway. There is an object in the center of the passage that I am certain was not there earlier. She bends over to pick it up and says, Everyone is so sick. Dying. You could help, but you ran. Her revelation makes me think I am supposed to understand her words, but I remain clueless. Who are you? I ask, frustrated. I suspect she knows much more about me, but I know nothing about her. I'm Victoria, she answers. Influenza was killing many people when we first moved to this building. She pauses, deep in thought. Now, Tina, we were talking about your sick people. This kid shifts faster than a race car, jumping from one thought to the next. Wait! 
Did you say you had moved to this building? Where are your parents, Victoria? I find it hard to believe that any decent family could live within the walls of this place. Her sunny countenance melts into melancholy, and I am suddenly sorry I interrogated her in this way. The sick people, Victoria says with an edge of anger. Hearing those words again causes a notable shift in my memory bank, and terrifying images flash across the screen of my subconscious. Thousands of people lying on cots, vomiting blood, and the sanguine fluid even oozes from their eye sockets. Distant cries of agony reverberate through my head, and then I realize those pleas for relief are originating from down the hallway. I peer past Victoria, searching for an open doorway. Victoria walks towards me and holds out the object she found on the floor. It is a name tag. I grasp it and emblazoned across the front, Tina McMore, Assistant Research Analyst, CDC. Center for Disease Control, I murmur. Memories, they are slippery little buggers. Are you beginning to remember, Tina? My finger traces the indented letters as I stare at the name tag. Muffled moans arise behind me once again, and the hair on my neck stands on end. I don't, I respond as I fling the tag to the carpeted corner. But I do remember. What is Ebola X? She asks, reading my recent thought. This seems worse than influenza. Yes, I say, as the fog of my brain clears, as though I have awakened from a dream, and I begin to relate my story. Dr. Eugene Stanley is an expert in infectious disease, with an encyclopedic mind of the history of plagues. Ebola has been a scourge since the 70s. It emerged in Sudan and Zaire in 1979 and has presented as a bleeding fever that kills quickly and is basically incurable. Recently, something we named Radical X attached to the virus and it became even more deadly. Radical X? Victoria queries. I hesitate to explain to a child a complicated scientific development, but she seems genuinely interested. There are atoms that are known as free radicals, and they can become highly reactive. We pinpointed this one that we decided to call Radical X. To beat this modern day plague, we needed to find a way to detach that radical. We were unable to do that, and thus, we could find no cure. Victoria remarks with a glint in her eye. No cure, you say? Then what's that in your satchel? I nearly forgot I had been hauling this bag around. The contents of the bag are a mystery, so I reach inside and feel around the interior. There is nothing inside. Just then, my fingertips brush against a cylindrical object in the bottom of the bag. I snatch it and yank it from the satchel. There is a thick, green, gelatinous fluid in the large vial. The flickering light emanating from the gas lights is insufficient for me to read the labeling. What is it? I ask Victoria. 
berating myself for assuming this child would know. She shocks me as she responds. It's the cure, silly. What am I doing with it? I ask in confusion. And why can't I remember anything? I say with exasperation. Victoria does not answer me. Rather, she bends over and grasps another object from the floor. I see she is holding a music box when she stands. She opens the top, and a distorted strain of music tinkles slowly, as though the box has not been wound in a very long time. Victoria meets my eyes and smiles slyly. The problem is that you are just like a baby. Basically, you are little more than self-aware. You are still forming. More memories will come. Think about the vial a bit. I am bewildered with this talk of babies and becoming. Mix that with the fact that I woke up in a strange, empty building to find a child running around without any parents, whom is peppering me with vague references to a life I barely recall. My earlier thought that I hit my head seems a likely scenario. Or perhaps I am having some weird hallucination. Maybe this is a crack house of sorts and I am lying on a dirty mattress behind one of these doors. Victoria surveys me. She begins to tap her foot and points at the vial in my hand. Think about the vial, Tina. Memories flood my mind again, and I recall the day Dr. Stanley brought the vial into the lab. He had an air of exhilaration about him, and he was a man not given to emotions and passion. It was a breakthrough, I inform Victoria, although I already believe she knows what I am relating to her. The Ebola X was a mutation of a virus the world had never experienced before. And this vial contains the only sample we had. We just needed to replicate it, much like a vaccine, and distribute the substance throughout the world. Victoria puts her hands on her hips, scrutinizing me. And how did it come to be in your back? Anger stirs in my stomach as I tire of being interrogated and I shout, Just make your point! Her pixie face contorts with a frown, and she responds, Tina, you are here because of a choice you made. I'm trying to help you make a choice to change what you've done. What have I done? Victoria opens the music box's lid once again, but no melody plays. She winds the key, and a funerary requiem emanates with a deep, melancholy tone. A low, distant growl comes from behind me. I turn and once again survey the hallway. It is now completely dark. I am unable to see the elevator. Even the doors nearest to me are imperceptible. Fear replaces the anger in my stomach. That fear worms its way from the pit of my stomach to my chest. My breathing is shallow and strange. No air seems to circulate within the crevices of my lungs. I gasp and fall back against the wall. One time, I fell from an inner tube into the river and the water enclosed me. 
At the time, I was unable to swim, and the water pulled me down no matter how hard I kicked my legs. My father reached into the water and saved me. I feel that same drowning sensation now, and my long-dead father cannot save me as I drown in this oppressive darkness encircling me. You took the vial, Tina. You came to this old building, sitting on the block alone. You had no address, but it fit the description. Gothic, granite, sprinkled with grotesques and gargoyles. You were selling to the highest bidder. You betrayed your mentor. You betrayed mankind. But most of all, you betrayed yourself, Tina. I look to my accuser in horror. She's right. My treachery would shame even Benedict Arnold. Abruptly, the sensation of unseen icy cold fingers brush against the nape of my neck and I shiver. Follow me, Victoria says as she turns the knob to the door nearest her. We enter a moldy room with furnishings more suited to the 19th century. She is uninterested in the contents of the room as she steps up to the far window. Come and see. I join her at the window, unable to shake my unease. Look to the street. Twilight has caused the street lights to blink on, and below their glow sits a bus slightly askew. Emergency vehicles flank the bus, and from my vantage point, it is difficult to see what has occurred. There are no other damaged vehicles. Those people from the cars with pretty lights are trying to save your life, Victoria says, as if reading my thoughts once again. They won't. I jolt back. What are you saying? You no longer live, as I no longer live. I glance at her, and she is slightly transparent. I study my hands and notice I can make out the details of the windowsill and the curtains through them. The vial I am holding drops to the floor and bounces lightly on the carpet. The lightness I had felt earlier makes sense. No, I'm not dead, I cry. The open door of the room is darkened as the blackness in the hallway creeps forward. In your rush to get your big payday, you neglected to verify the street was clear before you crossed and stepped in front of that bus. My body feels solid again as I slip to my knees in anguish. I hang my head and weep. Please, I sputter between sobs and continue. I'm sorry. I blink away tears as I look to Victoria for forgiveness. She surveys me with pity and says, It's not too late, Tina. There can be redemption for you. You have to return the vial. Does that mean I will be alive again? I ask. Victoria shakes her head slowly. Some things can be fixed, but that is one thing that cannot. I pick the vial up from the floor. My memories come to me as if a curtain pulls back from my heart and I can see inside. That heart is full of greed, jealousy, and betrayal. It took death for me to see the cankerous, dark shell of my soul. I had been the kind of person who was willing to sacrifice the lives of millions of people, all so I could make money. I'll take it back, 
I say with an edge of defeat. The oppressive darkness hovering at the doorway dissipates. Victoria skips to the doorway and waves for me to follow her. The Merc retreats down the hallway as she leads me back to the elevator. She pulls back the gate with the effort of a child. I'll give you a ride on my lift. Your lift? I question with a raised eyebrow. She gives me a playful wink, and I step inside the box. Next up, the lobby. She chirps. The oppression is completely lifted as I grasp the handle of one of the double doors, leading to an outer world that I can no longer experience as I once had. A sense of joy and peace washes over me as I exit the old dilapidated building. The fear is not totally expelled, since I am unaware of what lies ahead after I return the vial. The emergency personnel load my wrecked body into an ambulance. My spirit will never fill that vessel again. I am thankful for that. I remember I did not thank Victoria, and I turned to express my gratitude. The building is gone. An overgrown and neglected field has replaced it, and in my shock, I survey the block in confusion. Then I smile as I realize Victoria made a special trip for me, and now I have some redemption to earn. big thank you to all of you for listening to the show to all of you who take the time to rate and review the show in itunes and stitcher and every place else and to all of our patreon supporters without your generous contributions it would be nearly impossible to put this show together full show notes with credits links and artwork can be found at victoriaslift.com we make other podcasts you might enjoy check out the wickedlibrary.com and also ninthstory.com for links to other shows. If you're on social media, you can check us out on Facebook and also on Twitter. And if you'd like to make sure you don't miss future episodes of the show, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, lots of places. Today's episode of The Lift was brought to you by the following people whose names I'm about to mispronounce. Aaron of the Alexandria Archives podcast. Aaron McCormick. Aaron Mosher. Aaron Vleck, Ada Terrell, Alyssa G, Angela Mabry, April Barber, Ben Apperson, Brad Erickson, Brandon Jant, Brian Wainwright, Byron K. Veerling, Dennis Scott Jepson, Diane Student of the History Goes Bump podcast, Donna Seeley, Emily Sherman, Hannah Woodford, Jennifer Clickenbeard, Jenny Sweeney, 
Jillian, John Grills of the Small Town Horror Podcast, Josh Wood, Julie Collins, Kelly Perkins, Kyle Walker, Lisa M. Duvall, Melinda Duppy, Patricia Harris, Paul Sading of the Subject Found Podcast, and several others, actually. Poo Lee, Sam and Jake LeBas of the Just a Story Podcast, Scott Roche, Shelly Perrin, and Sophia Rivera. Thank you so much to everyone who listens, and especially to you who keep the show free for everyone else. 